All right, as we sink in, kind of a review into Genesis 2, we're going to begin with uh, a text, Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12, that will move us into this. So first, the text. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. That word sprout in the Hebrew is the word desha. Go ahead and say desha. Desha, and it actually means to grow green. Let the earth grow green, vegetation, grow green vegetation, uh, plants yielding seed. Now that word yielding is the word zara. Go ahead and say zara. That word is a farming word. It actually means sowing. So let plants sow. Let plants be farmers. Let plants sow seed really key, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit, really key, with seed in it. It's not just fruit, it's fruit with seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, fascinating, plants yielding, sowing seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was what? Good, really important there. So in Genesis 1, we are introduced to this God who creates a divine gardener, if you will, is what we're introduced to. A divine gardener who sows a first seed that brings forth life-giving vegetation and fruit. Are you with me? Now, then we are told that the, this divine gardener looks at what has been created and calls it good, calls it good. Now, I highlighted that that word is really important to the movement of creation. In the Hebrew, that word good is the word tov. Go ahead and say tov. Tov, which is expansive meaning, it means becoming. We always think good, bad, good, bad, but it's tov means becoming. It's just getting started. There is a becoming to this creation. It's good and it's moving, heading somewhere. It's really important. And not only do we just see that and go, oh, okay, that's what it means. We actually see this truth realized in verse 12. In verse 12, it says this, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. You see how it just moved? The, the divine gardener planted trees and vegetation, and now in verse 12 it says, does it say God brought forth? The earth brought forth. It doesn't say that God created more, if you will. God created and endowed creation with the ability to keep on creating. It's a big deal. This God creates a dynamic creation with the ability to create. It's brilliant. So I would say it like this. Creation is a work of art, and it is an art that works. Come on. I like it. Uh, this is in creation endowed with purpose, and all of this has been called good. Good. The pinnacle of all this divine creating is found in verses 26 and 27 and 31 of chapter 1, and it looks like this. Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion, circle that word, 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. That's a good time. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was what? Tov meod, tov meod, very good, which is unique in Hebrew. They usually don't put a bunch of adjectives. They, usually, they don't really have that so much in the Hebrew language. So this is like cranking it up. This is a way of saying, whoa, this is a big deal. It is tov meod. It is very good. This God creates humanity, and the first word spoken of them is that they are good, and in fact, they are very good. First word spoken about humanity. Humanity is not enslaved by this God. Rather, this God partners with and empowers humanity to be stewards of this dynamic creation in all of its becoming. Are you with me? It's a big deal. That word translated as dominion, it shows up again in verse 28, and it's joined by another really important word. So we'll throw that up, verse 28. God blessed them, humanity, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, another important word, and have dominion, there it is again, over the fish and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now those two words, the Hebrew word for dominion is the word radah. Go ahead and say radah. Radah, and the word for subdue is the word kibosh, kibosh. Right? You've, you go, I have heard that before. They put the, you know, kibosh on them. So, sort of. It's kind of like that, but it's different. Both of these words um, are really important and they have too often been horribly misused because these two terms in Hebrew are both stewardship terms. Humanity has been given tasks or purpose to do. Humanity has been empowered yet given free choice, free will within stewardship. Humanity, you have been tasked with stewarding creation for it and its becoming. So to abuse this responsibility, to flippantly extract, take, or selfishly consume is simply called abuse. Please be responsible and steward creation forward in its becoming. If you don't steward it, it will just keep becoming and it can become overgrown, so we need you to... Till it, guide it, move it as it's becoming, and it will become all that it was created to be, and you are participating in what you were created to be as one of the things as a steward of this creation. Are you with me? Uh, I love this. Um, in uh, his 2005, way back then, uh, book Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell noted that this is why litter and pollution are spiritual issues, right? These, these are things like taking care of creation. We don't go, oh, that's that, another thing. No, it's a part of our calling from the beginning. Are you with me? 
So I would say it like this, creation is called good, humanity is called good, and from the beginning, stewardship has been baked into who we are as humans. We are invited to partner with the divine in guiding and stewarding creation forward, which would be good news to all people. Yep. This leads us to Genesis 2. So that kind of gives us a summary of where we've been. And now let's step into Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we will use the Tree of Life version to kick us off. It's done by the Messianic Jewish uh, family that put this together, translation uh, called the Tree of Life. But it begins like this, chapter 2. Uh, so the heavens and the earth were completed along with their entire array. God had completed by the seventh day his work that he made, and he ceased on the seventh day from all his work that he had made. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, for on it he ceased from all his work that God created for the purpose of preparing. Now then, last week I brought up the Babylonian creation account known as the Enuma Elish. Okay, so this, this, which would contextually actually comes before they found, it's older than our scriptures, if you will. So there's this Enuma Elish, and this is what's interesting. Though the gods of the Babylonian creation account, the gods, the first thing they sanctified and called holy was a temple to the god Marduk. So this is interesting because the first thing the gods, the Babylonian gods called holy is space. Which is fascinating because in striking contrast to that, the first use of the biblical concept of holiness relates to time. Whoa. Why is this important? Think of how many church fights there have been over holy space. Here, God blesses and sanctifies time. So in other words, with focused attention on honoring the divine, any space can be holy space. Woo! Do you see the difference? It isn't so much, oh, this is holy space, when, because the guy who was a Christian put the bricks in place, so apparently, or, or the builders, when they came, they had a fish on their, building, uh, on their business card, so they're Christians, so the building is Christian. What? No, that doesn't, mm, no. How we occupy space, our posture, our ethos, our, uh, the way in which we honor in that space. So just time. We're going to take time on Thursday at 4 p.m. for however long, and we're going to gather wherever we are, and we together are going to honor God and honor the one another as image bearers of God. And we're going to do that very intentionally by praying together, by singing, by digging into one another's lives and caring for one another and taking care of one another. Great, wherever you are, holy. Beautiful. Are you with me? <laughs> oh, we could stop right there, but we're not going to. We're just getting started. Now, that word cease that we have in there, it's the Hebrew word Shabbat. Go ahead and say Shabbat. Shabbat or Sabbath. So here's the thing. Shabbat means to cease, rest, 
desist from labor. Here's the thing. In the Hebrew scriptures, often referred to as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, Shabbat appears 71 times. Here's the thing. 47 out of the 71, it means to cease. First, it means to cease. Only 11 times does it mean first to rest. Okay? So first, cease from labor. Cease from work. Cease, then rest. But here's the fun thing. Guess what Shabbat also means? Because again, these pliable words, they, guess what it also means? To celebrate. Did you know this? So then, to celebrate's a big deal. So here we go. Andrew, perfect with your question. Here's the thing. I would say it like this. There is a six-in-one rhythm to creation. For six days, we participate in the art of creating. creating. We follow that with one day of ceasing from the act of creating, wherein we celebrate what has taken place and celebrate the divine creator. So Sabbath is about ceasing from labor, and it's also about celebrating. Sabbath is about rest, and it's about party. Yeah? So the initial invitation uh, to humanity who have been called good, I think it's the next slide, maybe not. Um, yes, who have been called good is to rest in and celebrate the one who created them. We need you to stop and rest in that God is good and you need to celebrate the one who has created you. This is, this, do you realize if we were to make space for this in the depths of our being, it would change everything? Do you see that? If humanity would honor this invitation, if we would say, yeah, great, we're going to live with a six-in-one rhythm. It doesn't, I don't know what your day is, whatever that six-in-one rhythm is, but there's going to be a stopping there's going to be this ceasing, there's going to be this resting, and there's going to be this celebrating. The first word spoken about us is good. And the first invitation to us is celebrate the one who created you. Imagine if that was our foundation. Because it is. This also means, and you, if you know me, I've said this a number of times, this also means that Christians, the church, should throw the best parties. Because our foundation is gratitude and our worth is grounded in whose we are rather than in what we do. Are you seeing how revolutionary this is? The church should throw the best parties. We start from a place of gratitude. We do so on whose we are. Our identity isn't coming from what we do then. Oh, no, no, no. So none of this Edna makes pickled eggs and we sit in a musty basement and then we talk about how Gertrude has that thing on her foot. What? What kind of, huh? No, 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 no. It should be buoyant, bursting, joyous, good times. The church throwing the best party because we have this gratitude and we know whose we are and we're going to celebrate that. Are you with me? No offense to Edna or Gertrude. We love you. 
This rhythm of creation has humanity working from a place of rest rather than collapsing in exhaustion from the ceaseless demand from our work. This distinction is massive. Now we're going to talk more in depth about the idea of Shabbat or Sabbath in a couple weeks. This is just an like a primer. This is a teaser for where we're going to be when we get to that. But for now, here's what I, I just don't want us to miss. We are de defined by whose we are rather than by what we do. We are defined by whose we are rather by, than by what we do. Uh, one of the hardest things for me Day off, shut down, set, we're going to cease. Who am I when not needed by others or people wanting to connect, to love, care for people, to, to be a pastor? That's what I do. It's not who I am. And sometimes to sit and to not be needed is really hard. You, you, to sit in that stillness and that quiet sometimes is hard. And it's a reminder to stop and go, but God, you created and said it is good. I am good to you. And I'm loved, period, not because of what I teach, how I teach, how I pray for, connect, pastor, whatever. Beautiful. Do that out of a place of who I am. But that's not who I am. Okay. Uh, so we have work to do. Sure. But the work is not who we are. We are first and foremost children of the divine who has called us good. Okay. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Keyword, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground, the, the ground, well, wait a minute, uh, then next, uh, it continues, finishes, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Anyone kind of confused? Because we're in chapter two. Is this another creation story? Anyone have that tension? And in fact, in my Bible, uh, it interrupts verse 4. It interrupts, so chapter 2 begins, and the first three verses of chapter 2 are like kind of in there. Then there's a, a, a heading. My heading says, another account of the creation. What? What? So it's another account, the phrasing, that phrasing where it said these are the generations, the, the Hebrew is aele, aele toledoth, toledoth, 
Now what that means, it appears 10 other times in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, so 11 times, it's used as a formula to indicate a new and significant development in the story. We have all these chapters that we have put it in, you know, verses and chapters, we did that. But this would actually be natural in the Hebrew literature. This is their breaks. Oh, now we're going to tell you another movement, significant movement, development in the story. There are 11 of those in the book of Genesis. And they have that. This is one of them. So it's not another creation story. It's another way of telling the creation story. Are you with me? It's like saying, hey, I'm going to tell a story, and then I go, oh, I'm going to tell that story again, but I'm going to tell it a different way because I want to drive a different point home. They, they are, have different purposes. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have different significant purposes that they're doing. Another way the Hebrew language communicates an importance of a text is in the ordering. Did anyone pick up the difference in the ordering? Notice the subtle but intentional flip in verse 4. It says, the account of heaven and earth. Then it said, to when the Lord God made earth and the heavens. Flip the order. That's intentional. That's a way of saying there is the cosmic God of the heavens and the earth that created, and then there is the personal. So there's the powerful God created the heavens and the earth, then there's the personal God who formed the earth and the heavens. It's very intentional, and it, it matters. Uh, this is, uh, it's, it's asking us, please pay attention. It's known as a poetic uh, chiasm, here it shifts the focus from the cosmic viewpoint of the heavens to the personal and intimate viewpoint of the earth. The focus now shifts from the cosmological goodness to the earthy goodness. So it's a flashing neon sign that says, um, uh, there's another one coming that said, pay attention, pay attention. Uh, another way you see this in the New Testament, literally the names in a particular order. Uh, for example, in the book of Acts, it talks about Barnabas and Saul, right? Or Barnabas and Paul, but it's Barnabas and Saul go out and they do stuff. And then if you're reading, and all of a sudden it'll flip and then it'll go, then Paul and Barnabas went to this area. That is actually communicating Barnabas was in charge first, then Barnabas gave leadership over to Paul. Paul's in charge now. That's what he's communicating. And it's because where they're going and the voice and like, hey, Paul, you're going to have to communicate here because they're going to respect you more, your voice here, you're stepping up now. That's what it's doing. That's how that literature works in this thing. Another flashing neon sign of this movement here in Genesis, though, is there is a second name for the divine introduced, correct? In Genesis 1, we just have God, or in Hebrew, Elohim, which is plural, by the way, Elohim is. Think on that for the next life. Uh, so Elohim is used 32 times in the book of Genesis and 2,500 times in the Hebrew scriptures. Elohim is not a personal name. It's a generic word for the creator, for a transcendent God of creation, a generic term. 
And we are told that this Elohim creates, bara is the Hebrew word that we talked about, which communicates a cosmic power. Bara is only used in the Hebrew scriptures of God, of Elohim doing. There's no one else or nothing else that baras, only Elohim. So it's this cosmic kind of large power. Genesis 1 is communicating a cosmic God, which can be beautiful, but here's the thing. It can lead to people thinking that God is somewhere else, distant or far away, you know, up there. Do you see the problem? That's why Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 need to be held together. You do have this cosmic big God, but then Genesis 2 says, let's talk about Yahweh. Let's talk about the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is uh, transliterated as best we can to Yahweh or Yahweh. This is doing it to say the personal. So if you have ever wondered why, why does Wally say the divine? Because it, God is generic. It's a title. It's not a name. It's a generic term for the big creator. So some people have a hang-up with God. They hear God and they roll their eyes. They hear God and it's got baggage galore. They hear the divine and they're like, ooh, I can get on board with that. Uh, guess what? Same thing. But if I can speak in such a way, if I can talk to someone that has them go, oh, okay, oh interesting, let's talk about the divine then. Great, great, let's do that. I would love to. But for some people, for various reasons, God gets a little hang-up. It's a title. I'm not concerned about it. Yahweh is a different piece. So, uh, in Genesis 2, we find Elohim additionally called Lord or Yahweh. And to best get at what this looks like, because it's tricky, uh, we're going to look at where this name was actually introduced, because it's not Genesis. We see it, but it's not introduced. It's introduced in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, where we find a guy named Moses having a conversation with the divine in a burning bush experience. Sure. Around his calling to lead the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt. So if you recall, last week I said this story of being rescued from slavery in Egypt is the central story to the Hebrew scriptures. So this story, Exodus 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 13 and 14. So the conversation, Moses said to God, okay, you told me to go to the Israelites. If I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, Excuse me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or it's translated, I will be what I will be. Well, now we're, I mean, that's as clear as mud. What is your name? I am who I am. And that means, I mean, if I'm Moses, I go, uh-huh. Now, do you have a divine dictionary that helps me a little bit? But here's the thing. It's a way of saying the personal, experiential, dynamic essence of life and love that rescues and empowers will take whatever form necessary. I will be whatever I need to be that is the very breath in you. It is the very power of rescue and redemption that will look a number of different ways. 
I'll be whatever I need to be to meet you where you are and lead you forward. Are you with me? It's stunning because it's not Larry. But there's, if someone was named Larry, I'm guessing they were given that name for a reason. Yeah, okay, there's a purpose. There's some engine. There's something there. A lot of times we've done with names. Yeah, same thing. Yahweh communicates. In fact, the Hebrew is Yod, He, Vav, He. And they actually, the high priest goes into the sanctuary, whether it was the first the tabernacle, then into the Holy of Holies and the temple and is supposed to once a year go into the Holy of Holies and speak the name of God. And guess what the priest does? Goes into the Holy Holies and goes and breathes. Because their understanding in the Hebrew, the best they go is it's the sound of breathing. Yahweh is the sound of breathing. So it's breath. It's the essence of life. That's the name of this God. Are you with me? Ooh. Okay, so what action does Yahweh, Yahweh do in Genesis 2? It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So there is, as a reminder, Elohim creates, Barah. Here we have Yahweh forming, which looks like this. Okay, next slide. Um, Barah means to create. Form is the word yatsar. Go ahead and say yatsar. To form through the squeezing into shape. To get at the nuance, we turn to the poetry of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 43, verse 1, it goes like this, reflecting on the story. But now this is what the Lord, Yahweh, says. He who created you, Jacob, you were created, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, Jacob and Israel are the same person, right? But there's a name change in there. And that took place because of Jacob engaging with God and having who he becomes formed, shaped by this personal God. Who, who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. That's what I've done by being with you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And when you said yes, and we engaged in this, you became a new person. So then, Jacob was created. Israel was formed. And we're going to dig into Jacob's story, my favorite story, later in Genesis. But for now, we are given the picture, ready, of humanity being created by the cosmic Elohim, then another kind of part of God being this Yahweh, deeply personal, forming who humanity becomes. Okay? So in the context of many creation stories with many gods, all described as powerful and seemingly distant and cold, though, this God is both powerful and personal. You see that such a, they would have been like, well, this is brand new in the history of the world. We have this God that is big and powerful, and we have this God that sits with us and plays in the dust with us and breathes life into inanimate dust and gives it life. Genesis 1 offers a big, powerful, cosmic God. Genesis 2 adds the personal, intimate hands in the clay forming, Right? who breathes life into static dust. This God is both, which is a brand new revolutionary story. 
Once again, can you see how you read the story matters? Every single person is created in the image of the powerful and personal God. So every single person is loved and is sacred because the first word spoken about all is good. Good. This is theologically known as original blessing. Now I know some of you are going, well, wait, I've heard of a different terminology, original sin. Let's talk about that next week. First, first is original blessing. First blessing, that is, then the question is raised, what or who forms who you are becoming? Do you see that? All are created in the image of God. Then the question is raised, who or what will form who you become? We'll talk about that next week. This idea of humanity's core identity is highlighted by one of the first Christians. So now what I want to do is we see these hyperlinks from Genesis that go throughout the scriptures. We'd say a hyperlink that's going to send us through the story. So I want to look at a guy named Paul from the New Testament who writes all of these letters to these these communities, these churches, in all of these different places, and he does something really fascinating at the beginning of each of his letters, the way he addresses these communities, these people. In his, in his letter written to several of them, he addresses the people as saints. So, for example, Ephesians 1 says, to the saints or the holy ones, your translation might say, to the holy ones or the, to the saints who are in Ephesus. It's how he begins. And he'll say it, to the saints in Galatia, to the, to the saints in Thessalonica, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints or holy ones in Rome. Now here's the thing that's really important. These people are not called saints or holy because of their morality. Just read the letters. They're a train wreck. It is not because of their morality, but because whose they are is why he calls them this. Paul knows it's whose they are, that they are the creators, which makes them saints or holy ones. Paul's most used phrase in all of his writing, anyone know the phrase he uses more than any other? In Christ, in Christo. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you're in Christ. In Christ, do this. In Christ, live this way. In Christ, this is who you are. In Christ, in Christ, in the beloved, in the one. In Christ. In fact, his letter to the Ephesian people, this is so stunning. There are six chapters, as we have it, in the book of Ephesians, correct? The first half, the first three chapters, there are zero imperatives. Paul doesn't say, here's what I need you to do. He spends the first three chapters telling them who they are in Christ. It's just this, here's who you are. Here's who, let me remind you who you are, whose you are. Let me tell you that. Then in the second half, the next three chapters, it's essentially this, in light of who you are, this is then how you should live. In light of who you are, please honor the divine by living this way because that's whose you are and that's who you are at your foundation. 
it's really brilliant what Paul's doing here. Let me just make sure you're clear on who you are. Then you live from that place in all that you do. If we could have that. I think this is the, the most important teaching our world needs to awaken to, embrace, and live out of. Because I really, really trust this could change everything. For example, I want to move from the theological into the practical, okay? There is a brilliant musician uh, named Eric Jenis. He gets it, and he uses his gifts to transpose the grace of God into the most devastating places. He uses the gift of music to announce the message that all are loved and all are originally blessed. So what I want to do is I want to show a, a brief video that has him in um, the Lebanon Correctional Facility. So what he does, he's a composer. He is a genius, and it's funny, his last name is G-E-N-U-I-S. And it's often people confuse it and say genius, and his name is Genus, last name. But he is, a, he is a musical savant. He's brilliant. And what he does is he goes to prisons and plays for free. He goes and does this, and he'll tell you why, but it is such an example of what this means to live this understanding out. So this video, we're just going to do three minutes to get a picture. Then I want to tell you a story that flows out of this, but this is at the Lebanon Correctional Facility, and we'll take a peek. I hope. This piece is called Promise. There is a mystical, profound dignity in every person that is unspeakable. Never, ever question your dignity. Sometimes a lot of these guys don't feel deserving, so it's hard to go back to the block and be in a combative or irritative mood when you're experiencing things like this. There's people, there's actual love and good people in the world. It's, it's truly life-changing. never met a person that's not worthy of me going through great lengths to get a performance for. They're all worthy of it because they're broken like everybody else. And, and I just think, why wouldn't I? All the more you should play for your brothers who are broken.
Sometimes it's hard for me to believe in God, and just by seeing you guys coming over, so that tells me that uh, that is something that makes uh, people to be good people. And, uh, you know, I'm here working on it. I see the mercy of God just by being alive. Struck a real chord, made me feel, you know, all the guilt and, you know, despair that, you know, this place offers. And, but then he came right back and lifted us right back up. It was, it was amazing. In this environment, to have some positive is, is a hard to come by sometimes. This way of going in there, did, I mean, just hearing some of their words when they experience this. Now, what I'll do is I want to tell you a story that comes out of this. So it's just one story, but it, it moves into what this does when we offer, communicate love for all. One story told by Jesuit priest Father Gregory Boyle. I was introduced to him uh, a handful of years ago uh, in his first book, Tattoos on the Heart. Uh, he, inter he ministers almost exclusively to gang members, and he is the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, California, where he works with gang members. And just so we're clear, if you look up Father Gregory Boyle, he looks like Santa Claus. He's a kind of... Uh, um, portly uh, white guy with a big white beard, and he is, and the amount of respect, he, he probably more than anyone, I kid you not, in the streets of LA has more respect and connection with these people. So he tells this story. <clears throat> I make my way to Pelican Bay State Prison at the top of the state of California near the Oregon border. The Catholic chaplain, a gentle soul named Sam, has made the arrangements. Pelican Bay has long been considered the repository of the worst of the worst. It has forever been the last stop of all the stops. Sam walks me through a segregated unit, one man cells, holding the most incorrigible. He announces me to the cell ahead. It's Father Greg from Homeboy Industries. Many become little kids in juvenile hall again. G-Dog, remember me? You used to throw mass at Central, at East Lake. After Sam would announce me, I would step up and carry on a brief conversation and end with a blessing. I celebrate mass in the gym on A-Yard. Sam has secured a large group to gather and has also been allowed to take pictures, which is not a permission typically granted. After mass, inmates pose with me, one, four, sometimes a 12 or more group. I meet a guy named Louie with every inch of his face covered in tattoos, a calling card for a seriously traumatized human being. Tattoos like this can often be a keep-away sign meant to keep all comers guessing as to the mental stability of the tattooed one. Louie has all day sentenced forever and will never leave prison alive. He is goofy and charming and not at all off-putting. He becomes the phantom, ever-present photobomber. 
He manages to insinuate himself into every picture. Though never invited, he steps into the shot and no one rebuffs him. He's just a tender part of the scenery. As Sam and I walk from the gym after Mass, I mention Louie and laugh about our intrepid photobomber. Sam tells me that some months earlier, he had planned a concert by Eric Jenis. Eric has performed at Carnegie Hall and later at Homeboy Industries. He plays the piano and has a couple others who accompany on strings. Sam had ducated, secured permission for 200 inmates, but only 60 showed up, and Sam was a bit disappointed. Eric had planned to play for 45 minutes, then engage in a question and answer session for 15 minutes. He began to play, and something descended on these folks gathered in the same gym where I had celebrated the Eucharist. There was a reverent stillness thick in the air. Inmates and guards alike were held in the music's spell. It was the most glorious thing Sam had ever witnessed at Pelican Bay. He looked at the prisoners and soon they were all sobbing. He saw that the guards were discreetly flicking tears. The magnificent, magnificent music had detonated something, some release so welcome and unexpected. Eric finished and turned to his stunned audience and asked if there were any questions. There was only silence for some time. Then Louis, our photobomber, rose. He had something to say, but he was still crying so hard, it was momentarily a struggle for him to locate his question. He could only utter one word. Why? Eric began to cry as well and said, because you are deserving. You are worthy of beauty and music. And because there is no difference between you and me. Father Gregory Boyle sums it up like this, and I'll put this on screen. And here... I suppose, is the faith that saves. When we are anchored in love, tethered to a sustaining God and ever mindful of our undeniable goodness, that's why. Father Boyle will go on to say that it's not that the prisoners have forgotten their original goodness, but that they have never been properly introduced to it. In my life as a Christian, and certainly as a pastor, I could not agree more. In fact, I grew up in a culture that used religion to imprint onto kids and adults that they are first and fundamentally and totally depraved. You are sin-soaked, soulless wretches. That's where we are to begin the story of humanity totally depraved, but that is not where the story begins, is it? 
That is not where the story begins. Do we all sin? Absolutely. Yes. Each one of us has the capacity to take the story so far off track. Of course. We see that every single day on the news outlets. But that is not where the story begins, and it is not the meta-movement of the story of God found in the Scriptures. So I want us to hear some of what Paul speaks into and over the people of Ephesus, and then we're going to make room to reflect with music and with a writing exercise. In Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 6, and then chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, it reads this. To the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful, what? In Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, ready, who has blessed us in Christ with some, a few, most, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What are we created fundamentally to be holy and blameless before him in love? This is how you are seen. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the what? Good pleasure. This God is the God of pleasure and it gives God such pleasure to do this. Of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. For by grace you have been saved through trust. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of work, result of works, so that no one may boast. Ready? For we are what he has made us. It's a tattoo. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we may walk in them. You are created, called good, beloved, loved, blessed with every spiritual blessing to do these good things that are prepared. Here you go, walk in them. Live out who you were created to be. Do you see in this part of Ephesians, Paul is essentially summarizing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them who they are, whose they are. For we are what he has made us. Now, that is, uh, maybe in your translation it says we are God's workmanship or God's handiwork. That Greek word, it's one Greek word, is poema. It means work of the artist, masterpiece, it's where we get poem. Is that 
how you see yourself, the masterpiece of God. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's artwork. You are God's poem. Because it is the first word spoken about humanity. We are who the divine says we are. May we come to trust the divine's word over any other guilting, shaming, and destructive lie sown by deception. Maybe you're like me who often hears things that are not who I am, but I'm told. And you buy into it. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't do enough. I'm not enough. Because they say that. He says that. She says that. I've been told that year after year after day after day. Lies. The divine says who you are. And when we begin there, we live from there, it changes everything. To hold this view of ourselves, of our neighbors, and yes, our enemies, I know would change everything. This is why I unflinchingly invite everyone everywhere to say yes to the God who is love and who is good because it's about a reclamation project for each person's essence. That's what we're after. I just want to reclaim who you are in your very being. So we're going to take some time and reflect on this. Because the question is, is that how you see others, first and foremost? Do you begin with, oh, created in the image of God? That's who you are first. So what I want to do is I want to do a writing project. Uh, there are uh, index cards. Maybe some of you have some. Uh, Lisa has a, a plenty so that we can have an index card. If you need a writing utensil, we'll get you that. And here's what we're going to do. Sue has some as well. Beautiful. Um, on the card, we're going to take some time in reflection. And here's what I want us to do, because this is how we begin to practice this. I, I want us to write down on the card some names of folks that you find difficult to love. So this is for you. You're going to write down some names of folks that you find difficult to love, that maybe for you, you don't begin with they're created in the image of God. But here's the thing. I'm going to kick you off. I'm going I'm to get it started for you, for all of us. The first name I want you to write down is your own. Maybe for you, it's really hard to love yourself. Maybe it's really hard for you to see yourself created in the image of this good God. So maybe you start with your name and then go from there and you have a list. Um, maybe some of you want a, another card or 10. Uh, I don't know, but this is a, it's a beginning. It's a start. It's how 
we get going. So we'll, we'll write some names, and then um, maybe as a part of it, you, you have your card, then you can ask the God of love, this good God, to give you eyes to see as the divine sees, to begin to see these people as God sees them. And you could, yes, say a prayer that the names of the people you write down would be open and responsive to the transcendent love of this God. If that's what it is, oh, that they would be open to. God, open my heart to your love so I would see myself and others the way you see them. God, may their hearts be open to your love that they may start, begin to live from who they are, whose they are, yours first in all that they do. Because I believe it will change everything. Because how we view humanity matters. And I think it would change everything. We see enough destruction, enough hurt, enough pain, and it's all because people are living from what they are not. When we do that, we can take this thing way off course. And it happens. But what if there were a people, a community, community of people that said, we begin here this is where the story begins. This is who we are and where we begin. And we will live in love from this place. It will change everything. Because we will be living from out of the love of the God who shapes, makes, and changes us. So let's take some time. I'll pray and then uh, we will sing you can listen, let the war words fall over you, let the art of music dance within your heart, awaken within you that which is deepest within who you are, and then just write, pray over the names, the people. Gracious God, we bless you, for you created us and said, good. In fact, very good. This is our beginning. This is our foundation. This is our essence. You are our beginning, our essence. Continue to remind us, stir in us your love, your goodness. Gracious God, may you break the crustiness of our heart that is built up over time from believing, buying into the lies that have been told to us, told at us, pounded into us, imprinted on us, whether by ourselves or by others. God, break that crust. Open us up to hear your voice first and foremost to live from who you are because that's whose we are. And God, in all these names, these people, there's stories beyond stories within them and it's so difficult sometimes to love those difficult people. Help us, God, to see them first and foremost as created by you and in your image, first and foremost. Give us your eyes to see, to love. Here is your church.
form us to be your body in this world. In Christ, we pray. Amen.